I, I love to see people um, encounter God. I love to see people uh, get full of the Holy Spirit. I love to see times of ministry where people come up and they get prayed for and we shake, rattle, and roll. And uh, all, all these amazing things happen. I love prophetic words. I love um, prophetic culture that this church is starting to run after and starting to go after. Um, and I love to see it. It's like one of my favorite things in church. Um, but I also have such a heart for, for Christians to um, have an understanding and know how to think in church. Um, I have a heart to see Christians who don't leave their brain at the door when they walk in and pick it up on the way out, um, who understand and know why they love God, that they don't just say, I love Jesus, but they know why they can say they love Jesus. Um, I got such a heart for um, the church just, and I also think at this moment in time, it's, it's really important that we understand and we know and we give reasons for our faith. I usually tell, I tell my young people this quite a lot. I say it's not good enough nowadays that you tell people that Jesus, um, that you love Jesus. They want to know why you love Jesus. The world wants to know why we love God. It's it's, it's something that is so, so important. It's something that I, I, I've, I've been looking at recently. You might have seen the, the stories on social media. Um, there's an Australian worship leader. His name's Marty Sampson. He was um, very influential in my life just growing up. And he posted an Instagram post recently of um, just stuff that he'd been going through. And it was a bit of a crisis of faith. I don't know if he's fully left the faith and he's just renounced his faith, but definitely a crisis of faith. And he put it out there and it was things like, how does a good God send people to hell? And all these like really, really tough questions, which I, which I have dealt with. I've, I've like struggled with myself. And, and he put it out there and it's almost like I'm out. That was, that was the message. And uh, some of you might have seen it. But there was a guy called John Cooper, who's the lead singer of a Christian band in, in the States. He sent a response to Marty. And his response went along the lines of something like this. He said, uh, Marty, like, I understand that, like, that's really tough, the things that you're struggling and going through and the questions that you have and the doubts that you have. But why give up on your faith? Why give up on God? Why throw your whole relationship with Jesus away because of these really, really tough issues, these doubts? And he said, there's resources, there's books, there's sermons, there's pastors, there's theologians, there's people who've, who've hashed this stuff out. They've, they've thought about this stuff. It's like these questions aren't new. You're not the first person who's thought of these questions. Um, some people have thought really hard and they've gone to the Bible and they've gone to go get some really good answers and it's out there. Go, do your research. Don't throw away your faith. Don't put your hands up and say, I'm out because I struggle with some really tough questions and I'm not bashing the, the tough questions. Some of these questions are really tough. They are. And I've struggled with a lot of them. But I, I see it all the time as a youth pastor. We see young people on fire for Jesus and they just love God with all their heart. And um, then they go to university and they're hit with philosophies. They're hit with ideas and worldviews that just take the foundation that I thought was so strong, but it just falls away and it shatters and it becomes nothing. And I want to see young people who understand and they, they, they know why they believe in Jesus, not that they just believe in Jesus, but why do they believe in Jesus? So when the philosophies come, when the, the doubts come, when um, the professors call them up in front of their whole class and, and ridicule them because they, they're a Christian and, and what they believe in, that they would take a stand, not just in their faith and emotions, but they would have an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, what the Bible says about who God is and who Jesus is, and they would believe it. 
no matter the doubts, no matter the, the opposition that comes. So tonight, sorry, I want to say one more thing. Part of worshiping God is using your mind. Part of worshiping God is using your mind. Tonight might be a little bit different, but Matthew 22 verse 37 says, Love the Lord uh, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The mind is made to think. So if you're thinking, you're using it right. If you're thinking, you're using it right. And tonight I want to I talk to us about probably like the most important foundational question you can ever ask yourself. And that is, who am I going to marry? No, it's not. <laughs> the question is, uh, you can put the first slide up. The question is this. Why believe in Jesus? Why believe in Jesus? I, I did a first part to this. You might have been here. Um, I spoke about um, uh, how can we know that the Bible is true, essentially. And uh, I shared a bunch of stuff. And this is a little bit different to a normal sermon, but I was praying. I really felt to share this stuff. Um, with you guys and hopefully help a few people here tonight. So I want to talk to us, like, why believe in Jesus? How do we even know that Jesus was real? How do we know? I've read, uh, I've watched some documentaries. My friends have told me a few things, like, he's not real. He was just a made-up story. We might have seen many, um, many depictions of Jesus or heard stories about that differ to what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So why believe in Jesus? Why put all our eggs into one basket? I mean, there's so many options out there. There's, there's Buddhism, there's Hinduism, there's uh, Islam, there's atheism, there's New Ageism, there's so many. There's an array of different religions and options. Why put, why put all the chips in? Why go all in for Jesus? Why? And, and I want to help us to understand just this will be a bit of a different um, sermon tonight. It's going to be a lot of like thinking, a lot of like um, intellectualism, and a lot of history. So can you guys do this? Everyone do this? It's a thinking hat. And uh, you've got to put it on your head. Okay, cool. Are you guys okay with that? Yes? Okay. So, how do we know that Jesus was real? It's a little bit different, but what historical reasons do we have to believe that the gospel is true? So, if you have 30 minutes and so somebody asks you why you're a Christian, this is something that you can share with them in 30 minutes. You can sit them down with a cup of coffee and share this stuff with them. Hopefully, it'll help them. See, the Bible says that we're always to have an answer for the faith that uh, we believe in, the hope that, was in, that is within us. So this stuff is really, really important. Okay. Dun, 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 dun. Let me put my watch on. Okay, here we go. Okay, so this is how the story goes. In 30-40 AD, a bunch of Jewish disciples went around teaching and preaching a very peculiar message. And the message was this, that a, a friend of theirs named Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. And they spoke about him, and they gave him the attributes of God. And so this is super surprising for a bunch of Jews in first century that they would actually do this, that this message would come out from Jewish males in the first century. Why? Because foundational to first century Judaism is that God is not a human being and human beings are not God. It is foundational to ancient Judaism. But here we have a bunch of Jews going around and saying their friend, this human being, is God. He has attributes of God. They're putting him on the same level. In fact, he's not just a human. He is God. Why would these guys do it? 
what is going on? And it forces the question, what is it that made them believe that their friend, this friend of theirs, was God? Again, their fundamental Jewish beliefs. Why would they believe a human to be God? It's unheard of. It makes no sense. People don't just change their, uh, their religious assumptions easily, especially not foundational ones. There was something about Jesus that convinced these young Jewish males that he was God. Well, that's what they tell us and in the stories, because we can see between 40 and 60 AD that they wrote it all down in what we see as the Gospels. They wrote it all down and why they believed that he was God. And there's a few reasons why they believed that he was God. One of them is that he made divine claims for, him, divine claims for himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He taught with authority, like unprecedented authority, that miracles and exorcisms were just normal in his ministry. He had radical power. And that after he was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and they saw him after this. See, if you take just those reasons alone, you can now see that why they changed their fundamental beliefs. It would take something this crazy, this wild, this out of the world, for it to happen, for them to change their fundamental beliefs and make this assumption. Okay, Sean, that's great. But if it's not true, how do we explain their beliefs? All right, so there's really one or two options, right? It's one or the other. So you can put the first one up. It's either that they were telling the truth, and the other option is that they weren't, and that it's false. So this message that they started proclaiming was either true or false. It cannot be one or the other. It was either true or either false. So let's look at false, because if it's true, I could get off the stage right now and we could all go home. Um, but false, I want to look at false. And if they're not telling the truth, if, they, if this is not true, there's two ways of looking at this. The first one is this, is that um, it was intentional, so that they were telling a lie, that they came together and they made it up. And the other option is this, that it was unintentional. So the first one being a lie theory and the second one being a legend theory. It was unintentional. So they, they had um, good reasons. They were um, sincere in what they were preaching and what they were telling people, but it wasn't anchored in history and it became a legend. See, maybe Jesus was just this impressive guy who did um, many good things and the stories grew over the years and they were passed down from generation to generation. And before long, all of a sudden, what do you know? He's proclaimed to be the son of God. Maybe that's what it is, legend. So we've got a lie and a legend. And I want to look at the first one, the lie, the lie theory. So if the disciples came together and they decided, let's make this up, let's make the story up, couldn't they have just got together and made it up? I got four objections to that lie theory, and the first one is this. What motive would the disciples have? What motive would they have for doing this? You see, if the disciples got rich off the story of Jesus, if they, if they all of a sudden got to ride like fancy cars, got fancy watches, got like the latest iPads and iPhones um, for what they were doing, like it, it would make sense. That's a good motive. Like it would make sense. But this isn't what happened to him. It's not what happened. We know from history that they were viciously persecuted. The disciples were killed in some like horrific ways. And the thing is, they knew, most of them knew that this was their end. They knew that if I preach this message, this is my end. This is what is going to happen to me. Yet they still did it. They didn't get rich of it. Why would you make up a story? I mean, a lot of them, their, their family, their kids would be killed for 
for preaching this message. Why would you make up a story knowing that your, your wife and your kids would be killed? It makes no sense. The motive is all wrong. There's, there's no motive. And we know from a court of law, one of the most important things in making an accusation is that you need a motive. And this doesn't stand very well. They don't really have a motive to go with. The second, um, second one is this. No early critics accuse them of making it up. So early Jewish authorities, they, they saw Christianity as a cult. Like, it was a cult. The same as we would. Like, if uh, we heard that a cult was um, starting up literally down the road, like, we would want to expose it, like, very, very quickly for what it is, for being false, right? This is what the Ju- Jewish authorities saw Christianity and, and the church as. But one argument that they don't ever offer is that these people were making it up. You never see that. In fact, if you go to um, something called the Talmud, which was the early Jewish writings, they never deny that Jesus existed, nor that he did any miracles. Pretty crazy. What they do say is that he did miracles, but they were by magic or by the power of the devil. So they don't deny it. They don't deny Jesus was real. They don't deny the miracles. But what they never, ever say is that the disciples made it up. You'll never see that. And this is a good indication that they're not making it up. Third point is this. How in the heck could they pull off this lie? How could they do it? See, this is a story about a recent friend of theirs. This is not like years and years and years and years and years ago. This is very recent. It just happened. See, they're claiming a message to have happened in the same time and same place that other people, the audience that they're proclaiming to. And other people would have seen the same things. Other people would have seen the miracles. They would have seen the stories. How do you pull off a story like that in the same place that the same people have witnessed some of this stuff? It's the wrong circumstances to pull off a lie. We know that the brother and the mother of Jesus were in the crowd of disciples. They were being told, um, these stories were being told while the mother and, and brothers of Jesus were there. Another thing is that they dropped big names like Caiaphas, Joseph of Arimathea, Herod, Pilate. These are big, big names. If you're trying to make up a lie, One thing that you don't do is drop big names in there. Why? Because this is being told in the vicinity of where these people are. They can literally just go and ask them, like, hey, did this happen? Was it true? Was it not? You don't want to do that. You make yourself easily easily refutable. And they can just go to them and ask, are they telling the truth? And the fourth one is this. There's no record of them, anyone, none of the disciples cracking under pressure. You guys have seen some movies where people get tortured and it's really bad, and eventually they just... The pain's too much, and they have to give up the truth, give up the answers. But there's no record of anyone cracking under pressure. See, when, uh, when you have a conspiracy theory and things get tough, somebody eventually cracks under pressure. See, in the early Christians, not only did they, um, they not gain anything, but they were subjected to crazy, crazy persecution. In fact, we know from history, Nero in the 60s, he would, uh, this is pretty gruesome and gross, uh, so close your ears if you don't want to hear this, but he blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians. And uh, he wanted to turn the populace against the Christians, so he blamed them because this Christianity thing was spreading so quickly. So that's what he did to try and take it out and, and squash it. And what he would do is he would take Christians and he would impale them on poles. He would uh, cover them in tar and light them up. And uh, all his friends would come around for dinner while these Christians are burning. They call them uh, Roman candlesticks. It's pretty, pretty gross. I'm like, are we to believe that in the face of this radical, radical persecution, are we to believe that all, in the face of all this stuff, none of the early disciples, like not one, 
Not one of them just said, okay, I'm sorry, I was joking. It was all a joke. It was all a joke. No, like none of them did that. None of them made it up. They never said that, that they made it up. If anyone would have made it up, we would have heard about it because the authorities at that time, um, they were very concerned about exposing Christianity as a lie. And they would have, what they would have done is if they found out that it was a lie, they found out that these people were lying, they would have paraded them around the town. But we got no records, nothing of this. The fact is that it didn't happen, which should, should suggest that they didn't make it up, that they were sincere in what they were preaching. So a lie theory just doesn't add up, like, if you look at it. It doesn't stand on good ground. So let's look at the other one. So if you're not going to believe a lie, let's look at the second one, a legend. Legend. So legend is this. The story was told about Jesus. He wasn't the son of God. He was just a good man. Did some really good stuff. And over time, many, many years, it just grew, grew, and grew, and grew, and grew until eventually Jesus started being called uh, the son of man. And he had attributes of God, and he was known as God. And then people started to worship him. Okay, so I got six, um, six points against the uh, legend theory. And the first one is this. The environment was not right for legend making. First century Palestinian Judaism was not conducive environment for legend making. You see, some cultures, are, it's really, really easy to make um, legends and to make myths. You think of the Greek, ancient Greek culture. Uh, we have so many myths and legends that come out of that culture. It was just really easy for uh, legends to be created in that culture. See, but first century Palestinian Jews weren't like this because they lived in a time where they're surrounded by pagans. All of the, the nations around them, they had many, many legends, many, many legends all around them. And because they didn't want to be like the pagans around them, they were so careful um, about their beliefs that it was impossible for uh, legends, legendary stories to come out of um, first century Palestinian Judaism. So they were super skeptical about any legends, especially, especially any story about God being a human being. Okay, second point is this. If first century Palestinian Jews had created a legend, it would not have looked like the gospel message. It wouldn't have looked like the gospel. You see, what generates a legend or what makes something a legend is a need for social reinforcement of values. It's Beliefs at a time um, in society where beliefs are getting shaky, they serve a social function. So beliefs within a, within a society, within a people group are becoming shaky. What you do is you create a legend to reinforce those beliefs. It's like a hero just that carries these values that you're able to reinforce. You see, the trouble with the gospel is that it flew in the face. It went against first century Judaism in a big way. It doesn't conform to the standard. It doesn't conform to the norms. It actually goes against, a lot of the time, the norms of those days. You see, in the gospel, you have a cursed and crucified Messiah. No one expected this. No one expected a cursed and crucified Messiah. You see, all the Jews were expecting a, a Messiah that would rise up in power and, and be triumphant and take out uh, the Roman Empire using force and military. But we don't see that. We see a cursed and crucified Messiah. Jesus made divine claims and authority. No one expected Jesus to be God. People expected that when the Messiah came, he would, he would speak from God. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says in the message that the disciples are preaching, says that he wasn't just speaking from God. He was God. It goes against it. 
It also says that a man is worshipped. Nothing could be worse in Judaism at this time, that a man could be worshipped. And another point is that individual resurrection before the end of the age um, has happened. You see, all Jews expected everyone to be resurrected at the end of the age. But the message that the disciples preached was Jesus was raised first and then everybody else. They call it the first fruits of the harvest. So here we have these disciples preaching all of these things, all of these, um, these stories and the, these claims that go against um, the values of Jews at the time. So it just doesn't add up. It doesn't look, the gospel doesn't look like what it's supposed to be or how Jews would have expected it to look. Okay, my third point. Let's go. This is a big point. There was not enough time to develop a legend. There wasn't enough time to develop a legendary story. You see, stories, for a legend to happen, you need stories to be told over and over and over again, to be passed down from generation to generation to generation until they, they become a legendary story. See, if you, look at, um, if you look at someone like Buddha, a lot of people, there's some scholars think that he was actually an atheist and he didn't believe in God, and you can see that in, in some of his writings, but he didn't believe in God. And what happened is, is his followers eventually worshipped him. So couldn't it be said the same of Jesus, that he was just an atheist, he didn't actually believe in God, he was just a good man, and over time, um, people just eventually started to worship him. Couldn't it be said the same? It's happened in the past with Buddha, couldn't it be the same with Jesus? You see, but there's a massive difference between Buddha and Jesus. See, Buddha was worshipped as a god, one of many. He, he was worshipped as a god. And originally, Buddha was worshipped by some of his followers. And Buddha was within a culture, um, that first point over there, an environment that was right for legend making. And what happened was, he had a few of his followers who would worship him as God, but it took 500 years before people, most people, would start to see God, uh, Buddha as a God and start to worship him as God. 500 years within an environment that is right for legend making. See, Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't have the right culture. He's not in the right environment for legend making, and he doesn't have 500 years. He doesn't even have 50 years. Right after he lives and right after he dies, the disciples are claiming that he is resurrected. This is huge. James, his own brother, Mary, his mother, are in the crowds where it's being spoken of. They're happening. These stories, this message is going out in the very generation just after Jesus or in the generation of Jesus. And I think one of the strongest arguments um, that this cannot be a legend is that James, Jesus' own brother, was in the crowd. He, he was one of the disciples preaching this message. If you have siblings in this room, how many of you would have allowed the legend to grow of Jesus becoming the Son of God. If Jesus was your own brother, James would never, never do that. Brothers just don't do that stuff. Siblings don't do that stuff. They wouldn't do it. But he is actually one of the believers who goes out and preaches this message of God. The fourth point is this. The Gospels claim to write history and they read like history, not legend. C.S. Lewis said this. I've spent my life, you can read it, the previous one with a quote. There you go. 
I've spent my life studying legends, and if there's one thing the Gospels aren't, it's legends. Actually, if you do a bit of research and you go into like some of the third and fourth century um, stories and legends about Jesus, some of them were written, and you compare them to the Gospels, they're so, so different. There's actually stories about, um, in the third and fourth century of uh, Jesus and some of the disciples, you look at the Gospel of Peter, you actually see the story of Peter and Simon the sorcerer like having a, a fight, um, having a go in the city, and then what happens is Peter wins the fight, and how he does it is he, he flies, he takes off in the air, and he flies around Jerusalem, like wee, like Iron Man, and he goes all the way around, and he lands, and he wins the fight. You see stories of Jesus turning rocks into birds, cursing kids that he doesn't like. You see, they sound very fanciful. It sounds like legendary stories, but this is not what we see in the gospel. We see very, very um, clear, historical, um, sober writing. And this raises the question, why do so many New Testament scholars actually think, or they put the New Testament into legendary category? It's because of this. It's because they have miracles. It's because they have miracles, and because most scholars cannot come to terms with the miraculous, they don't know what to do with it, that they just, oh, this can't be true, can't be true, okay, we're just putting it into the legend category because miracles can't be true. You see, the disciples didn't see Jesus as a legend, but they saw him as, um, as true, they saw it as reliable history. You can put up that next slide in, um, in 1 John 1 verse 1 to 4. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Who's the word of life? Jesus. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life uh, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And he goes, I mean, you can see it there so many times. Seen and heard, seen and heard. We've seen him with our own hands. We want to testify that we've seen this Jesus, that it's not a made-up story, that this is real, this is reality, this is reliable history that you can rely on. This is what we are proclaiming, that we saw him, we touched him, we walked years and years with him. And either John is telling the truth or he's not. But he said, we've seen, we've heard, and we've touched. And he's passing on reliable history. So the Gospels claim to, uh, claim to write like history and read like history. Okay, fifth point. Do, 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 next slide. Okay, so the Gospels have evidence of being written early. If you were, listen to my first talk, um, which is actually another part of this, um, I spoke about this, and I showed you how early documents... Um, and earlier the document is to the events it's reporting, the more likely it is to be reliable. So we've, if you take a liberal dating of the Gospels, like around 80 AD, that's still pretty good. If you look at a lot of historical writings at the time, they rely on sources much further removed. Um, have you guys ever heard about Alexander the Great? Yes. Hands up. Alexander the Great. Yes. Do you know that there's only one source that we have on Alexander the Great? It's from someone called Arian, and it was written 400 years after the events that it claims to write about, 400 years. 
So he's claiming to write history, and he's claiming to have good sources, and historians generally believe that what he says is history. But how much more accurate are the Gospels with their claim to be written at the time of Jesus or just after the time that Jesus has been alive? You see, there's a lot of evidence in the Gospels that they were actually written early. And if you remember, the earlier a document is written to the events that it's reporting, the more likely reliable it is to be. So you can put up the next one. Look at this. Mark 15, verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. That's, you guys should be more excited about that verse. No? Okay. <laughs> now, if you read that verse just sitting in your Bible, just reading the Bible, you'll pass over that verse very, very quickly. But if you look at it through a historical lens, that verse actually is very telling because Mark is trying to write to his audience, and he's trying to explain who Simon is, and he gives a definition. He says, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And he only says that because he assumes that his audience knows who Alexander and Rufus are. Otherwise, he wouldn't write that. So that's why he puts it in there. So we can see from this verse that this is being written at least the generation after Simon. That's very, very close in writing to the time of Jesus. That's a generation just after Jesus, if, you're talking, if you want to take a very um, liberal dating of it. That is incredibly close. That's not 400 years. That's not 500 years. That's not 200 years. That's not 100 years. It's very close to being written from the actual events that they're writing about. Okay, last point, number six, is this. The Gospels give clear evidence of being based on eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony. And... Um, Historians use three criteria to, to know or to use if something is eyewitness or, or not. The first one is this. They look for unnecessary details. They look for unnecessary details. See, if it's an eyewitness, if an eyewitness saw something, they tend to replay the event in their mind, and there's lots of detail in there that doesn't add to the story. It just doesn't contribute. It's just there because that's how they saw it, and that's what they saw, and that's what they experienced. And the Gospels are full of this. You can put up uh, the next slide, John 20, verse 1 to 8. Okay, so John's writing this. As you can see, early on in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, I'm like, thanks, John. Didn't really need to put that in there, but it's okay. Um, and he says, Mary Magdalene. If you, if you look at that name, Mary Magdalene, um, Magdalene, uh, there was a, a town called Magdala, so most likely Mary was from the town called Magdala, and the town of Magdala was known as a city of prostitutes, and that's why a lot of scholars believe that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and if, as most people believe, that she was a prostitute, if John put Mary Magdalene into his writings in the context of a first century Judaism, like, it makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense that you would put um, someone of such a bad reputation as a prostitute into your writings and then say that she went on to the tomb and was the first person to see this Messiah. It makes no sense that you do, but he put it in anyway. And he went to the tomb, and she went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, uh, the one who Jesus loved, um, John's actually very full of himself. If you um, check out his writings, he's the one that's how he likes to, uh, what he likes to call himself, the one who Jesus loved. I don't know if Jesus loved any of the other disciples, but um, he definitely loved John from this. And he said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. 
So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. I'm like, that's also pretty random. Don't have to tell us that. But the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You see, he's full of himself. He's like, he just wants to let you know that he was first. And he bent over. Such random details, but actually pretty significant because we know that uh, wealthy tombs in those times were actually quite low to the ground for security reasons. Um, so he would have to bend over to get into those type of tombs. So he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. Then, then Simon Peter came along behind him. So he's trying to say, ha yeah, remember that guy? I beat him. Then he came along. It's just so random. And he went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Thanks, John. Didn't need to know that. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, that's me, John, also went inside. He saw and believed. So we see from this, just this little scripture alone, that there's so many details that don't actually add um, to the story. They're not, they're not necessary, but they're put in there anyway. Why? Because they all are coming from John's point of view. So we, we have reason to believe that this was as it happened because there's no other reason to put all that stuff in. Second point is this. You look for unexplained details. See, in legends, when, when you make a legend, um, legends always give answers to the questions. So legends are created. If there's questions, if there's shaky foundations, legend is created to bring the answer to the question that people are asking, right? So in a legend... Um, they always give the answer. But you see in the gospel that we have tons and tons and tons of unanswered questions. Has anyone here ever read your Bible and you're like, why the heck is that in the Bible? It makes no sense. Anyone at all? Yes? Okay, we're all in good company. It's a good thing. It's a good thing if you sit there and you ask that. Why? Firstly, because I believe God wants to invite us into revelation and that we would just ask Him and go into relationship and He will reveal some stuff to us because I believe that it's there for a reason. But there's a second reason is that it speaks of being eyewitness testimony because eyewitness testimonies, they look for unexplained details. So we've got the story of Jesus casting out the demons from that man and says that they go into a herd of pigs and the pigs run down the cliff and they fall into the water and they drown. What the heck? <laughs> What's up with that story? I've got questions when I read that story. Jesus, why put him into pigs? makes no sense. What happened to the man? Why the pigs can, I heard the pigs can actually swim. So like, it makes no sense. Like, why would you do that? I have no idea. <laughs> but what you get is that the only motive there would have been for telling the stories because that is how it would have actually happened. Another, another um, story is Mary Magdalene. She goes to Jesus after he's resurrected and she, she goes over to hug him and Jesus says, whoa, 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 don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. She's like, why can't I touch you? I haven't ascended to the Father. Okay, but why? I don't know. <laughs> it makes no sense. There's a ton of unanswered, unexplained details in the Bible. But this helps us to understand that this must be, and the only reason that it's there is because it's eyewitness testimony. It's just as they saw it happen. Okay, and the third point is this. Last point. They're, they look for counterproductive details. They don't go anywhere. It's, story, it's details that don't go anywhere, um, but they come against the story themselves. So uh, one detail is, is that we see very, very clearly in the Bible that you've got very, um, 
looks like you've got very dumb disciples. <laughs> Jesus' disciples can look very dumb. They just, they don't get it. Jesus says to them uh, a few times, I'm going to be handed over to authorities. I'm going to be killed, but then I'll rise again. Don't worry. They're like, no, 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 no ways. No, and they, they don't get it. They, they just cannot see it until it happens. And they're like, oh, oh, I get it now. Okay, it makes sense. Another, another point is John, he, he tells stories of Jesus telling his disciples that they must love their neighbors. They must bless them. And then we see the, the story of them going into Samaria, Jesus and disciples, and they're not welcome. And uh, John says, oh, Jesus, please can we call fire down from heaven and incinerate the whole town? Wouldn't that be cool? I'm like, what? This goes against everything that Jesus has been teaching you about loving your neighbor. It makes no sense. It doesn't add up. It's counterproductive. It's surprising that it's in there, especially that story. It's surprising that it's in there. If those disciples were writing those stories about themselves, would they not want to leave those little bit of details out just to save face? But no, the Holy Spirit led them. He, the Holy Spirit wanted them to keep those details in because it helps um, to testify uh, and to give strength to the Bible as a historical, accurate document that we can trust in and know that it's true. Another point is um, Jesus' family doesn't actually believe in him during his life. It's pretty sad, but um, Mark and John, we see in Mark and John that Mary and James and the other disciples, they went to go and get Jesus at one point because they thought he was crazy and he was about to die. I mean, if you go around in that time preaching that you're the son of God and the message that Jesus was proclaiming, you were going to die. And Mary and his brothers, they say, oh man, like, no, we can't have that. I think he's going a bit crazy. Let's go get him and bring him back before he gets killed. Like, this is the same Mary that an angel spoke to and said, your child will be the son of God. He'll be the savior of the world, the Messiah for the world. What happened to that, Mary? It's so counterproductive to what we see previously. Another part is a, a woman discovering the tomb first. This is very counterproductive to the message. They lived in an incredibly sexist culture at the time where women weren't believed. Their testimony actually carried no value. If a woman wanted to testify, they would actually have to take a man with them in order to, for their, their testimony to carry any value. How sad is that? But a woman comes and discovers the tomb first. Why would you put that in there? It's so counterproductive to what you're trying to say. But it's women who discover the tomb empty. And then the last point is Jesus' death cry on the cross. If you're going to have a legend about Jesus being the Son of God, the last thing you will make up is that on the cross, he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? That is so counterproductive to your message, and it undermines the whole story that you're trying to get across. But the only thing we can say is that this is how it actually happened. There's no other reason. This is how it happened. This is how it played out in history. These are the facts, and this is what it looked like. So if you look at the lie theory, it doesn't hold much weight. And I believe that the legend theory doesn't hold much weight and it doesn't fare any better. So, if neither the lie, the legend theory are believable, if two ways of not believing the story about Jesus are not believable, you're left with one option and one option only. And that's to believe that it's true. If it's true, and this is what I want to say, if it's true, this changes everything. If it's true, then we cannot doubt the message about who Jesus says he is and who he says that we are. 
If it's true, and I believe we've got very, very good evidence to say that it happened and that Jesus was real and the cross was real and everything that happened to Jesus was real and based in history, it changes everything. It changes everything. See, if it's true, no other factor is important. It becomes the center of everything of our lives. It becomes the reason for everything in our lives. It's the love that we long for. Everything is true. It changes everything. Jesus should become the reason then that we exist. See, and the only appropriate response that we should have if it's true is to surrender ourselves fully to him. See, the last thing we should do is just give him a part of your life. See, if it's true, the only proper response is to pour our whole life out to him, to become the reason that we exist. Can you just close your eyes? I want to pray for some people. You see, it takes faith to believe in him still. In the midst of evidence, in the midst of um, all of the stuff that I might have um, said this evening. It takes faith to believe in them still. We don't come to him by reasoning. We come to him by faith. We're saved by faith. Not by reason. But reasoning can go a long way in helping a lot of people. See, in the same, same way that it takes faith to believe in the other two options, the lie and the legend, it's the same way that it takes faith to believe in those options. It also takes faith to believe in Jesus and who Jesus says he was. I personally believe that it takes more faith to believe in the lie and, that, and the legend theory. But you have to go beyond the evidence. You have to go beyond the evidence. And at some point, you need to make a faith decision. And it's great if it's based on the evidence. But at some point, you need to make a decision that Jesus is who he says he is, that he came, he died on a cross, he took your sin upon him so that he can make a way for you to come to the Father freely. That sin doesn't hinder you from God anymore. That there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that he bankrupt heaven so that he could come for you. That he could know you. And if there's anyone here tonight that you, you don't know Jesus, you don't know a God who loves you, you don't know that there's a God in heaven who's mad about you. You don't know there's a God in heaven who wants you to spend the rest of your life with him. And this evening, hopefully I've, I've helped you with um, maybe some doubts or just shed a little bit of light on some of the questions that some people might have been struggling here with this evening. And if that's anyone here this evening and you want to say, Sean, thank you for that. Thank you for, the, thank you for some of the evidence that really, really helps me. And um, I want to follow Jesus. I understand that this is real, that maybe I've heard stories about Jesus not being real, Jesus just being a prophet and not, not the Son of God, but just a prophet, just a good man. Maybe you've heard that Jesus wasn't real at all, but tonight you've just seen something that's helped you to understand that Jesus, the cross, was very, very real, which means that God's love for you is very, very real. And he loves you. Anyone here this evening and you just want me to pray for you, you want to say, Sean, I want to know Jesus. I want to follow God. I'm tired of living my life my own way. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to give my heart fully to Jesus this evening. With all eyes closed, if that's anyone here, I would love to pray for you. Can you just put up your hand in the air so that I know that I can pray for you? It's anyone here. 
Just put your hand up nice and high in the air if that's you. Awesome, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So, Lord, we just I uh, thank you for your presence. I thank you for the times when uh, you rock up and you you mess with us, God, and we just move to tears. We just move to laughter. We can feel the spirit of the Lord, and it just touches us on such a deep spiritual, emotional level, Lord. But I just also thank you for our minds. I thank you that um, you don't want us to throw them away. You want us to think. You want us to have reasons. You want us to understand why we believe what we believe. I just pray that tonight, Lord, that hopefully I've just stirred up something in people just to um, go a bit deeper in study, go a bit deeper in history, just go a bit deeper in, um, yeah, just understanding the intellectual gospel. I firmly believe, and I'm just sitting as I was writing my notes, I believe that now is the time for an intellectual gospel to come to the forefront of church ministry. It's not going to look fanciful. It's not going to look like stuff we see on YouTube. It's not going to look like those pastors that, um, that we all look up to. This is the reality. It's going to take time. It's going to take study. It's going to take effort on our part. I feel like, um, it's just I can say this because I'm a part of this generation, but the, the young generation, millennials and below, like we've, we've lost a love for study. We've lost a love to just study the Word. We've lost a love to just know the Bible and let the Bible know us and just to reveal who God is in such a powerful way. And I believe that um, God's wanting to do something really powerful through the young generation. I believe it's a generation that's not afraid to stand up for their opinions, not to voice their opinions, which we can clearly see, which is a great thing because I believe it's something that God's put on the young generation's heart is just to, just to not be afraid to speak up, especially for those who don't have a voice. But I want us to be a generation that speaks knowing why we speak. I don't want to just preach my opinions. I don't want to just preach what I'm feeling. I want to know exactly why and understand why I'm saying what I'm saying so that it carries power when I say what I say and it impacts people's hearts. And we just see a young generation who's crying out and they're, they're asking questions. Why, why, is this, why would such a good God send people to hell? I want to challenge you right now. I'm, I'm in a season of study, just going deep. I'm reading books and I'm not just reading like one book at a time. I'm reading a few books at a time and books with multiple opinions and, and different um, ideas of one subject. Because I want to understand people's questions so that I can give them answers and that I don't just give them religious answers where the world's asking serious questions. I feel like we're just giving the religious answers like Jesus loves you and it's okay, brother, you'll be all right. But then we would understand what the world is asking that we would know and be able to give answers to real questions that the world is struggling with and they would help people and through our reasoning and through our answers, it would open up the door for people to come into faith with Jesus and for their lives to be forever changed. And if that's anyone here this evening and you want to say, Sean, I'm in. Pray over me. 
I want a passion to study. I want a passion to go after the stuff. I want a passion for intellectualism. I want a passion to just understand the gospel on an intellectual level. I want to know the questions that the world is asking. And I want to give solid, biblical, historical, accurate answers that help people rather than turn people away from the church. If that's anyone here, I want to pray over you that prayer. Anyone, just put your hand up. I'd love to pray that prayer over you. Awesome. There's a bunch of people. So, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, just for the amazing work that you're doing in people's hearts and lives. Just everyone here this evening. And I just pray that just what you're doing in my heart in terms of study would just be released on them. Lord, that they would just go into deep, deep times of the Word. I pray for as much as it intellectualism, Father. I just pray for wild, crazy revelations as they sit there and read their Bible, God, that you would give them revelations that they've never, ever, ever seen before, revelations that the world hasn't seen before, that, are, that young generations are crying out for, God, that you would give us the answers, Lord. I pray for just time to be set aside, Lord, I pray that you just convict their hearts on issues and things that they're doing that just take up so much of their time that we would take time to sit down and study. We would take time to sit down and read. We would take time to just be with you. Lord, I just got that real sense in my heart. Sorry, if you put, your, put, you put up your hand, um, I feel like God's just really pressing like social media. I feel like a lot of people just, you put your hand up and um, God's just saying, and this sounds really funny, but he's saying, get off. <laughs> Like he's saying, get off. And I had to do this. I like, I just don't do it anymore. Not as much. I just read and I just sit with him and I just allow him. This is just my personal season at the moment. I just allow him to speak as I just read and study and go deeper with him. So Lord, I just pray that you convict whatever, any area that needs to be um, changed in order to free up space for you for that deep study. Lord, I pray that you just put that on our hearts and that we would give that up so easily that all idols would fall in your presence, God.